Excellent. So last Christmas, uh, some friends of ours invited us out for a walk. And uh, we walked to death, Tilgate and Buckham Park. Uh, and so we thought we'd go on a bit of an adventure and we'd go up Chanctabury Ring. Chanctabury Ring is kind of uh, on the way to Brighton. Um, and as a kid, I went there loads. Chanctabury Ring's the sort of place where teachers go, what do we do with the kids? I know, let's take them on an educational trip up Chanctabury Ring. It's kind of a... Um, it's a prehistoric hilltop fort, but without any prehistoric hilltop fort, it seems to me. It's, it's like a, a mound in the, uh, uh, on the downs. Um, and uh, I was having a little look um, recently at how old it was. And they reckon that Chanctabury Ring was probably used at the time that Nebuchadnezzar went in and destroyed Jerusalem and brought all the uh, Israelites into Babylon. That's a long time. Ago. And so we were going to Chanctabury Ring and there was rain forecast. Now we were sensible parents, so we put coats, wellies, and uh, waterproof trousers in the back and we headed off and we met them at Chanctabury Ring and we were going to set off. It's quite a short walk up and down. We had some little kids with us um, and we were going to be fine. As we made halfway up this exposed, what seems to me uh, uh, massively exposed hill, we start to see clouds rolling in and they weren't like the, the fluffy white ones that you're happy to see. They were dark, ominous looking things. You can imagine all sorts of nefarious deeds being done as these clouds rolled in and the rain started to fall thickly and I'm not talking about a drizzly rain, I'm talking about the thunderous rain that means that you can't see across fields because the rain is falling so uh, thickly and the temperature it was already pretty poor and then it plummeted and went really cold and then suddenly the ground which had been dry and uh, uh, scalable suddenly had rivers coming down it as the rain fell on this hard ground and uh, water just spread out um, uh, across the surface of the earth. And even with all our parental preparation, it was obvious things were getting a bit dicey for the kids. You know, when they start to not talk, when they uh, start to shiver, and when they start to go blue in the face, that perhaps you should be changing tactics. Now, I don't remember ever doing this in the past. I am a dad and I faithfully see through my achievement through to the end, whether it's a walk or an expedition, we will achieve our end goal. But we got halfway up the hill and me and this other dad, we were like, yeah, the mums might be right. We might have to turn back. <laughs> and uh, we were like, well, we'll see how far you're trying to get them. And then we brought out the sweets early and did everything. Bigger. But bless them, these poor kids were shivering and barely making it up. The wind and the rain howling at them. And uh, me and the other dad were like, yeah, we need to stop this. Um, we're not going to make it to the top. Uh, and so the mums, bless them, uh, got the kids and sort of led them down the hill and me and the other dad, we legged it back to the cars to bring the cars as near as possible to these retreating figures on the hillside. Um, and it was obvious that even with all our preparations that this weather had totally beaten us, that we were not going to survive it, that we needed to find somewhere warm and dry very quickly. It's fascinating. 
there are a whole series of moments in our lives, especially when you are outside, when we, we get a glimpse, when we get an insight into our fragile creaturelessness. When we suddenly realise that we are not top dog, that suddenly we realise we are vulnerable. And we suddenly realise that the landscape out there is quite formidable. And when it turns, we really do need help. And scripture is full of moments that happen to significant biblical figures. We find Job in all his misery confronted by God in a tornado. We find Moses hearing from God in the cloud and the smoke. And we find Isaiah touched with fire again and again. We find these elements touching humans and then realising the majesty and might of God. And today we're going to read about another occasion, an elemental moment when God reaches out and touches a human person. And in that moment, we are treated to today's divine question because we've been going through a series of questions that God asks of people in scripture and then we allow them to speak to us. So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. So it says this in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9. There Elijah went into a cave and spent the night. Everyone say cave. cave. Has anyone ever been into a cave? Yeah. Excellent. I want you to caution my mind. That's what a cave was like. And this is where Elijah went. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing, Elijah? And he replied. And can you... Hear this. I have been very zealous for the Lord of God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I hope you can sense the feelings that Elijah is going through as he's talking these things through with God. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then, a great and powerful wind, more powerful than that on Chanctabri Ring, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. The writer here is drawing your attention to the fact that all that might and fury that that is not where the presence of the Lord is. And it hopefully it creates an expectation. So where is this presence of the Lord if he's not in that might and fury of that wind? And it goes on. After the wind, there was an earthquake. Anyone here experienced a real earthquake? Like proper one. Okay, we've got a few. There was an earthquake. Did, it, did, it, did any buildings fall down, do you know? Ah, okay, okay. But, so, but elsewhere, in, 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 uh, in other countries, earthquakes are serious, aren't they? You, you see buildings go down and where the people die. Okay, so we have a, an earthquake. And I think it was more uh, sort of Japan earthquake rather than the Crawley earthquake. Um, and there was an earthquake. And so there was a might and fury there. But it says the Lord was not in the earthquake. 
She had the wind and the earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in either of them. After the earthquake, there came a fire. Everyone say fire. Fire. We know in scripture that God's always in the fire. So we're like, oh, here he is. But the Lord was not in the fire. And we're like, oh, well, all our expectations have been frustrated. And then after the fire came something. Can anyone read it out? What came after the fire? Whisper. Whisper. Even sensitive to the medium. Very good. And so there was this gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he knew that that is the presence of the Lord. The fire and the earthquake and the wind. God wasn't in those. But this, this is where God was. In the quietness and the whisper. And so Elijah pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And it's a, a, it's a recap of, of what we've just gone through. And, and then Elijah, who's like a broken record, he says, I have been very zealous of the Lord God Almighty. These Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. It's exactly what he said before. The Lord said to him, go back. Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king of Aram, a king over Aram, and also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king of Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, uh, Melohar, to succeed you as prophet. So we've got this request to anoint these three people. Jehu will put to death anyone who escapes the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And Baal is like this pagan god. He's the god that's kind of set up against the Israelite god. He's the god that's in rivalry for the hearts of the Israelites. And God comes to this prophet. And this prophet has single-handedly sought to bring Israel back to God and to defeat the prophets of Baal and bring Israel to its knees before its God, uh, Yahweh. And Yahweh now asks Elijah, who's buried himself in a cave. Things are not going well if you're burying himself away, far from people in a cave. You are not at the top of the game. And this is true for Elijah. And he's buried himself in this cave. And he's frightened and he's scared and he's alone and he's exhausted. But he's ready for God's question. He has got uh, an answer why are you here? God says. And Elijah says, let me let rip. Let me tell you, God, why I'm hiding in this cave. I am the chosen man of God. Look where you have left me. And Elijah explains, your people, your people. Now, Elijah's an Israelite. But he says, your people, God, they have abandoned the law of Moses. They have abandoned all these great truths that you have given them. They have gone their own way. They have ran after this Baal God. Your people, God. They're no longer being faithful to you. It's your problem. It's not just apathy. 
They're, they have an apostasy. They have a, they, they've just given up their parents' faith. And they're destroying stuff. They're destroying places of worship where Yahweh was to be lifted up. They were just bulldozing them and saying, yeah, they're, they're no longer important. And perhaps even worse than all of that, not only had they turned to Baal, not only had they destroyed these holy places, but the Israelites were killing anyone that was saying that they were a prophet of God. They were murdering them. Those that said, let me tell you what God is saying. And there was this resistance of Israel to the true faith. They were going, I know what uh, we want, and we do not want anything to do with this God, Yahweh, this God that's brought us out of Egypt. And Elijah looks at himself, and he goes, oh, God, I'm the last believer. I'm on my own. No one loves me. No one loves you. What are you doing? And he says, you know what? My life is finished. And previous to that, we have this moment of suicidal thoughts. He goes, God, kill me. I've had enough. I can't manage it. I'm too low. My reserves have gone. It's that thing, God won't give you uh, more than you can handle. Well, he gave Elijah more than he could handle. Elijah had finished. He was like, I've done. God, this is it. I've finished. And we hear those notes of accusation in Elijah's account. What are you doing? Why haven't you done something? God, this is your fault. You failed. Shall I tell you what Elijah hasn't mentioned? Because God has been very busy in Elijah's story up to this point. In chapter 17, a child dies and Elijah sees him resurrected. It's a miracle. It's a being brought back to life. But Elijah doesn't mention that because he's focused on the down and out aspect of his life. In chapter 18, he ridicules the prophets of Baal and calls down fire, which burns up the water and this altar, and it's a great spectacle, and everyone goes, Dear God, uh, you are the true God. And it's supernatural, but Elijah doesn't mention that. And then in chapter 19, we have the supernatural provision of uh, food. But Elijah doesn't mention that either. He is focused on all these negative aspects uh, of his experience. Elijah feels disaster and death all around him. And he says, you know what, God, you failed me. And this is why I'm miserable. This is why I'm alone. This is why I'm wallowing in self-pity in this cave. It's your fault. You failed me. I'm totally justified and I'm going to give every reason I can of why I'm here. If you've got a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16. It says this, Luke chapter 16, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Who can serve two masters? No one. No one. No, you can't do it. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and, what does it say? Money. You can't serve both God and money. One or the other is going to direct your steps. And then it goes on. The Pharisees... The religious people, the guys that guided Israel's spiritual life, what does it say they loved? Money. Money. 
The religious people, the people that were up the front preaching and leading Israel in their faith, they loved not God, but money. That is an indictment of the religious leaders of the time. It's little wonder that Jesus found it really difficult to get along with them. And so the Pharisees who loved money, and it shows they're not the ones that love God, heard um, of what Jesus was teaching, and they sneered at Jesus, because he was an impoverished speaker, often funded by women who worked for him, uh, uh, or or worked and gave him the money, and sponsored his ministry, Um, and he was weak and pathetic. Do you remember that passage I read out from Isaiah at the beginning of the meeting? where people looked down on Jesus and said, what sort of, you've got no power, nothing to attract us. And the Pharisees were doing the same. This Jesus is nothing. He's, he's worthy of ridicule, and that's about it. And Jesus said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly uh, is detestable in God's sight. And so we have this position where the Pharisees love money. Because, can I tell you a fact, money is often a more reliable master than God. You don't know what you're going to get tomorrow with God, but money you often do. You want to, have you got a physical appetite? Money will help you meet that. Uh, You want to be entertained? Money can solve that problem. You're sad and unhappy, go out and buy yourself some new stuff, and that'll cheer you up. Worried about the future? You've got money in the bank account, you've got uh, equity in your house, you've got a pension fund, you've got cash in the bank, your future is sorted. God doesn't give you those guarantees. And the Pharisees knew that, and so they loved money because of all the things it can do for their uh, mental health, their spiritual well-being, and their physical uh, status. Money is just brilliant. And when they were challenged, they justified themselves. They go, this is just God's blessing. Don't come back at me and say my master is money. God has just blessed me. I am highly favoured Uh, by the Lord and he has generously uh, given me this bounty of cash for me to roll in and buy vintage wines with like Elijah they justified their distance from God with clever arguments it sounds really intelligent what they had to say but Elijah's bitterness and the Pharisees' greed are both in opposition to Scripture. Again and again, we find Scripture say, you can't do that. It may seem like a good idea, but the long-term consequences are bad. It is destructive to you as a person made in God's image, and it is unhelpful for God's community. That sort of cancerous thinking destroys you and destroys those around you. A wise heart, and we were looking about looking at that last week. A wise heart knows that life is more than just about a temporal physical sensation or making sure that our pain is numbed. Life is about goodness 
and purpose and kindness and faithfulness. That is what a healthy life looks like. If you are measuring your life in any other way, you are finding yourselves in the error of understanding that Elijah and the Pharisees were uh, um, set in. Some of us are hiding in caves this morning. We've got caves of indignation. Why have you treated me like this and this is why I'm going to behave out? We're hiding in caves of greed, you know, accumulating stuff because it makes us feel good and under the cover of, oh, this is God's blessing. We're hiding in caves of isolation because it is difficult rubbing shoulders with God's chosen people. We are a mess. Uh, Like the scripture said, we're all like sheep that have gone astray and stray sheep uh, can be difficult to get along with. And so all of us, at some point, retreat into these caves that we justify ourselves going into. But they are bad for us and bad for everyone else. And God comes to you this morning in your cave, wherever you have hidden, wherever you are full of self-justification for your life, uh, uh, that you've made bad decisions, and says, what are you doing here? Why have you retreated to this cave again? This cave's no good for you. It's not healthy. You're not going to thrive in life. You're not going to follow my plan. You're not going to know what goodness and faithfulness and life is. These barren places, the ones we retreat to, they're self-imposed. They have no future. We like to wallow in self-pity. But they have no future. There's no eternal destiny for such a place. And we forget, and we omit, and we overlook those beautiful moments of grace of God in our life. Each of us, if we have sat in this room, we have sensed some moment of grace in our lives. You don't sit in a church building on a Sunday morning without some sort of impetus, without some sort of sense that God has uh, been good to you, that God has done something worthy of your attention. The cave life is miserable and we rob ourselves of a rich spiritual life if we stay there. Now Elijah's list of grievances hang in the air and they demand an answer. You know, all these things, Israel's gone their own way, they've destroyed the holy places and they're killing the prophets. And the question is, how will God reply? What's going to God say in answer to all these accusations? And I really love the fact that God doesn't reply with an argument. God doesn't say, well, let me tell you, Elijah, all the different places you are wrong, buddy. God goes off an apparent tangent. I love God's tangents. Most beautiful things. Because he goes, go to the entrance of your cave, come out a little bit out of your self-pity, and just, just come to the edge of your cave. Not all the way, just come outside it and just allow me to pass by. And so Elijah gets up and moves because God is going to pass by. And that's obviously something to behold. And we find these three experiences before God's presence comes. We find a wild wind charges past, one that breaks rocks, something furious and majestic, something that would make you catch your breath, something that would make you uh, uh, hide from its fury. 
And then after that, an earthquake comes. And not just the little crawly earthquake where the pictures rattle on the walls and uh, everyone goes, was that, was that something? This was something you knew it hit you, where uh, the very ground, the foundations of the earth seems to have dissolved and turned into jelly. And then thirdly, we have this raging fire, this furious blaze, and you know what comes with fire and the smoke and the noise and the light. And it consumed everything uh, that was before it. And each of these would have been a great way to answer Elijah, who's buried in self-pity. All of these things were with God saying, don't you know who I am? Are you being piteous about yourself when I am so majestic? But the Bible states very clearly that God was not in any of those things, that he was absent from them. None of them contained God. They were to accentuate what came next. It is in the quietness, and some translations say the silence, that God's presence is known. Not the wind, not the earthquake, not the fire, but the silence. That was where God was. It's so easy to want to be impressed by the power and dynamism of God. We constantly long for this aspect of his character, oh God, come like a rushing wind, come like a furious fire, come like an earthquake and shake Bubush. And we think, uh, oh, so many problems would be solved if God came like this and showed his face like this. And we pray it over ourselves as well. And we pray it in the prayer meetings, oh, Heavenly Father, expel this sickness. Come in your might and do something worthy of your name. Do something dramatic. Change the circumstances, God. Confront the sin, confront the sinners. Make the world take notice of your splendour. If you've got a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And turn to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, we who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Everyone say near. Near. For he himself is our, what does it say? Peace. Everyone say peace. Peace. Everyone say peace quietly. Everyone say peace quietly. A comedy sketch. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one, so Jews and Gentiles, who are historically divided. And he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making, what does it say? Peace. Everyone say peace. peace. And in one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility, he came and he preached what? Peace. I hope you're getting the theme of what Paul's writing here. This peace of Jesus that he brings. 
He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. You are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are but fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. That is your scripture, the apostles and the prophets. That is the New Testament and the Old Testament. That is the foundation of your faith. With Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together. This is the God. This is the Jesus. This is the man who never said anything untrue and was always helpful. We read that in Isaiah 53 earlier. In the man that was always helpful, in the man that always spoke truth, he is the cornerstone, joins everyone together. Can you think of a better person uh, to join everyone together? No, you can't. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. It is God in flesh, Jesus, that in the silence of our souls brings us closer to God. Your relationship with God doesn't need fireworks. It doesn't need winds and earthquakes. It needs Jesus in your heart. The silence of him bringing you to the Father, of the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts and making us experience the love of God. It is God in flesh, the one who ate with sinners and touched the diseased. He joins us into community together. He's the one that says, you know, Bianca and Wendy and Kevin and Marion and Tracy and Richard and Tim, you're one together. You didn't choose each other, I brought you together. And even if you think it's not going to work, you need to be reassured that I am going to bring peace you may all disagree on politics. You may disagree on a hundred other things, but I'm going to bring peace, peace and unity there. And it is God in flesh who died for us. How did he die? By letting out his breath, breathing his last, and hanging dead on a cross. And he is the one that builds us into a holy temple. I think that a lot of us could do with a little less longing for fireworks and a little more paying attention to the silence that God is in, that God inhabits, that God dwells richly in and does incredible work. I think perhaps some of us should do a little less worship karaoke and a little bit more quiet confession. Some of us need to have a little less noisy religion and have a little bit more deliberate, quiet reading. Some of us need to spend a little time, less time casting out a thousand demons and have more time in quiet prayer and silence and attentiveness. So Elijah's exposed his soul before God. He said, these are all the reasons that I'm lonely and in pity and hiding in a cave. And God comes near, but not in sound and fury, but in that peace and grace and rest. But God has more to impart. 
He has specific words for Elijah to obey and be helped by. And so Elijah is told, go and anoint some kings. Go and make some new rulers. And these new rulers will bring about the order of God in uh, Israel. They will cling to God's word and ensure that the people that don't agree with it are pushed out of community. And more than that, and this is, I think, Elijah got far more than he bargained for, Elijah is to anoint his successor, the person that he comes comes after him. Elijah suddenly realised, in the midst of his self-pity, that he is part of a deeper purpose. He is part of an Israel that is being rejuvenated by God himself. Elijah felt full of loneliness and isolation in that cave. And God goes, why? I've got 7,000 believers who love my name. Reserved for me. You think you're the only one. I've got 7,000. So many of us can feel lonely and isolated. And God says, you're not the only one. I've got lots of people all over bearing my name. And so after the depression, after the great signs and the gentle whispers, God says some clear, intelligent, articulate uh, words. Both confession and closeness to God is important part of our spiritual lives. But the most distinct comfort... The, the clearest direction that we will ever receive and the uh, loudest encouragement that we will know comes not from vague senses, not from uh, fleeting experiences, but it comes from God's written word. Everyone turn to the very last reading for today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. It says this. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And if you've had a bad father, that's not that one, okay? A father deals with his children with kindness, with patience, with love. Me on my best days, not on my worst. And it goes... Encouraging, comforting, and urging. Everyone say encouraging. encouraging. Say comforting, comforting. and urging. urging. Comforting, encouraging, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who called you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually because you receive the word of God. Everyone say the word of God. So that's the gospel, that's the New Testament, that's the Old Testament, that's everything that God has clearly articulated on the face of the earth, which you heard from us. You accepted it, not as a human word, not as a human invention, not as a clever idea, but it is actually the word of God. Say the word of God. God. Which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, become imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews. 
In these words to Christians in Thessalonica, Paul places massive emphasis on the gospel of Jesus Christ, on the word of God, on the, on the actual written statements that we have got preserved in our scriptures this morning. Forget religious feeling, forget supernatural phenomenon. These Thessalonians were to be celebrated because they saw the good news and were being transformed by it. They were being transformed into being saved and they were being transformed into uh, uh, being made holy. Just as it was true for them, it should be true for us. We should be continually transformed. It's nice to have a nice feeling. It's nice to have a, a, a holy wind of God and fire of God. It's nice to have a, a, a warm sense inside when we sing true words up the front. But it is God's word that brings the clearest encouragement, the most compelling comfort and an urgency in holiness that we will ever experience. If our mind is not on God's word, we do ourselves a disservice. If our faith is not bright, if we are not ever alert for divine appointments, if we attend church meetings with a reluctance or a sense of duty, it's not because God has faded out that somehow the faith that he brings is subpar. It's because we're neglecting his words. We're forgetting what he said. We're not resting on the things that he's left for our encouragement, for our comforting and for our urgency. We Christians are as good as any about moaning about our situations. And we can often moan about the absence of God's intervention. God, why haven't you done something? Why haven't you healed that person? Why haven't you stopped that disaster? Why haven't you intervened in this or that way? But the truth is, we have not been called to be healthy in this life. God doesn't guarantee you healthiness in this life. He doesn't guarantee you wealth. His own son was not wealthy on earth. He hasn't guaranteed you success. He doesn't say that you are going to be top of your game. He doesn't say you're going to be prominent and feature highly in everyone else's priorities. He doesn't say you're going to be famous or anything else. He says you need to know my word and you need to rest there. We are called to know God's word well, be familiar with it, and uh, be able to stand in it in all the different crises and situations and circumstances that affront us. In the end, it's not the healthy believer that wins. It's not the wealthy believer that wins. It's not the successful, the prominent or the famous. It is the faithful believer. And what are they faithful to? They are faithful to God and his word. And they will be greeted in eternity with applause and celebrations. And they will get the finest vintage wines available to uh, uh, God's throne. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we find ourselves today challenged by that question. Why are you here? And Lord God, I pray for us that we would not retreat to caves, 
of self-pity or greed or some other justified evil. But Lord God, that we uh, would look for your presence. Particularly, God, I pray that we would be good at being silent in your presence and having you minister to us in that quietness. That, Lord God, we would treasure your words and that we would allow the peace of Christ to transform us rather than just have circumstances uh, alter. And Heavenly Father, I pray most of all that we would cherish your word, that we would be familiar with it, it would be a light to our path, that it would be something that we rest in when things get hard and it would be something that anchors us when things are good. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.